Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today. Thank you for being here. I want to thank Aaron and Kara for leading us in worship this morning. Um, yeah, we can give them a hand. Jordan and his wife, Steph, and their family are um, on an end of summer little weekend vacation with the family. And I happen to know that Aaron actually just found out he was leading worship like a couple days ago. We had someone else lined up and then something came up with their family and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't be here. So my wife and I, and I, we were eating at uh, Fire Street Pizza on Friday night and I'm in line and I hear this guy next to me go, hey, that's my pastor right there. And so I look over and it was Aaron and he was like, yeah, I just found out I'm, I'm helping lead worship on Sunday. And I was like, great, see you there. So Aaron's stepping in at the very last minute and, and helping lead us. And so we appreciate uh, him and Kara and really the whole band. They always do a fantastic job. If you, yeah, <clears throat> a lot of talented people, a lot of talented people up here. Um, if you're new to the Vista, maybe you're just joining us uh, for the first time in a while, we are uh, finishing our series called Live in the Dream. Uh, this summer, we've been walking through this series, um, looking at the life of this Old Testament character named Joseph. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. We're going to, uh, again, we're going to wrap up this, uh, this series, and then I'll give you a little bit of a heads up where we're heading. So starting next week, um, Austin and I are going to tag team a series called Exploring the Essentials. Um, one of the analogies we've used around here for a long time to talk about you know, things that we're very firm on, uh, areas where um, we call it close-handed, right? Where it's just things that are essential to our faith. We're not going to budge on these things. Um, we also then we talk about how we ought to have an open hand, and that's, that's stuff that we can disagree on, right? There's a lot of stuff in our open hand where we don't have to argue about it and fight about it all the time. Uh, you know, we can, have, we can have an open hand as well. And so uh, as we've used this analogy for years, uh, it kind of dawned on us that a lot of times that we use this analogy, it's usually to set up or to discuss something that we believe is sort of open-handed. And, and we were just kind of talking about how we want to kick off the fall semester, and we thought, man, we've never really done a series where we walk through the closed hand. Let's walk through those essential doctrines and what we believe about them. And so that'll be uh, the series we launch into beginning next Sunday, exploring the essentials. Um, and then after that series is over into the fall, we're going to walk through and, and uh, preach through the book of Romans. All right. So that gives you a little heads up where we're, where we're going. Uh, but today we are going to wrap up Joseph's story, this unbelievable narrative in the back half of the book of Genesis called Living the Dream. Now, uh, last week we took a break from the series, and since we're ending the series today, I need to do a little bit of recap, right? Recap the story of Joseph. Now, here's my goal is to kind of keep the recap to five minutes. I'm not 100% sure if that is entirely possible, all right? But I'm going to do my best, all right? So let me catch you up a little bit. Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. This was a really dysfunctional and messed up family for a lot of reasons, okay? Jacob showed extreme favoritism to Joseph, gave him this beautiful, elaborate coat of many colors, and sort of treated Joseph with kid gloves while he was much harsher with his older brothers. And so ultimately what happens is um, his older brothers, they despise Joseph. They can't stand Joseph. They hate him. Um, they plot to kill him. Then we'll get rid of this dreamer. So uh, they decide they're going to kill him. Well, the oldest son, Reuben, talks them out of that plan. And then Judah, another one of the brothers, decides, why don't we sell him 
Let's sell him into slavery. We'll get some money from the deal, and then he'll be out of sight, out of mind. He'll be gone, and so that's what they do. They ultimately sell their brother Joseph into slavery. They sell him for the price of a common slave. Joseph ends up in Egypt. The brothers assume he's dead. They actually tell their, their father he's gone, he's dead, a wild animal got him. And so everyone assumes Joseph is, is dead. Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt. Uh, at first, he's in the house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is a really important guy in Egypt, and it's not long before Joseph works hard and establishes himself as a good hard worker, and, and he's put in charge of all of Potiphar's household and business affairs. Things are going really well for Joseph. Things are looking up well until Potiphar's wife decides that she really likes Joseph, and she begins to try to seduce him repeatedly. Joseph rejects her advances time after time, it says day after day, until finally she's frustrated and she accuses him of assaulting her. Joseph is then thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit, thrown in prison. While he's in prison, there's a couple of prisoners there that have these dreams, and Joseph helps them by interpreting their dreams for them. Ultimately, one of them, one of those prisoners is, because of the dream that was interpreted, is, is set free. And Joseph just says, listen, just remember me. When you go before Pharaoh, remember me. Remember that I'm in here and, and tell him about me. And of course, the prisoner doesn't do that. He just forgets all about Joseph. And Joseph stays in prison for several more years. Again, wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned. Until finally, one day, Pharaoh himself has this dream that is troubling and he can't determine what it means. And so, this guy that had gotten out goes, hey, I remember years ago there was this dude in prison that was, uh, he was pretty good at interpreting dreams. Maybe we ought to call him. So Pharaoh gets Joseph out of prison and says, tell me what my dream means. Joseph does. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream for him. Basically, the dream was that there's going to be seven years of, of plenty, seven years of good harvest, lots of crops. Things are going to go really, really well. The land is going to produce for seven years, but then there's going to be seven years of drought and famine everything will die. So Joseph puts together a plan and says, during the seven years of plenty, we need to store in the cities, in the, in the storehouses, we need to store up all the crops, all the grain, everything we can so that we are prepared when the famine comes and we don't die. Pharaoh is very impressed with Joseph and he says, it's a great plan. And so he gets Joseph out of prison and then ultimately he puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph goes from the prison to the palace, right? He is living the dream. He is living the good life in Egypt all of a sudden. He's in charge of everything in Egypt. So when the seven years of famine come, people have to come from all around because Egypt is the only place that's prepared. Egypt is the only place that has grain and provision. So Joseph's brothers, who of course thought he was dead, they have to come to Egypt. They come to Egypt seeking provisions and they don't recognize Joseph. He's in full Egyptian garb. He's speaking through a translator. They think he's dead. It's been 20 plus years. They're not even looking for Joseph. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes his brothers. Instead of just revealing himself to him right away, he decides to test them a little bit. Joseph wants to see if they've changed at all. Has there been any transformation in their heart at all? And what we saw weeks ago was that at first, it doesn't look like it. At first, it looks like his brothers are the same kind of rotten, sinful, hard-hearted guys that sold him into slavery 20 years earlier. But then we began the next week, we saw that there is a bit of a change, starting with Judah. Judah has become kind of the leader of the brothers, the spokesman for the brothers. Judah's heart is changed. 
He's willing to sacrifice himself for his youngest brother. And, and so ultimately then what comes out of that is the brothers confess their sin. And then we saw this beautiful picture of forgiveness, right? Where Joseph, he could have thrown him in prison and been harsh to him or been like, ha ha, gotcha. No, instead he forgives him. Completely, totally forgives them. Not only does he forgive them, then he invites them, he brings them all down to Egypt. He uh, takes care of their families, their kids and their kids' kids. He, he puts them in this beautiful uh, land called Goshen, which was really great for shepherds, really good fertile grazing land. He provides houses and, I mean, he's unbelievably kind and gracious and generous and provides for them. It's this beautiful redemption story. The brothers are forgiven. Joseph forgives. Everything is wonderful and good. He even brings his father Jacob down. There's this uh, reunion. We get to see this reunion where, where, where uh, Jacob and Joseph are reunited. And it's just this beautiful picture, man. Beautiful picture. Well, at the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies. The patriarch of the family. He dies. And there's a funeral and they're all sad and what I want to do today is I want to walk through verses 15 to 21. I want to walk through those verses with you today, and we want to kind of unpack the end of the story. I think there's a lot, a whole lot in these, in these few verses, and so we'll just kind of walk through it together, uh, beginning in Genesis 50, verse 15, now that, we're all, now that we're all caught up, all right? Here's what it says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, well, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all of the evil that we did to him. Okay, so you notice the brothers are still assuming the worst in Joseph. You see that? They still assume the worst in Joseph. They, they're projecting onto Joseph a character that he has not demonstrated at all. And as I was reading this this week, it just kind of dawned on me how often, like, I do the same thing. Like, we tend to do the same thing with people, don't we? How often do we just sort of assume the worst in people? This is what Joseph's brothers are doing. Joseph is, has been nothing but good and gracious and kind and forgiving and providing. And now they're like, uh-oh, dad's dead. What if it was all a big ruse for years now? Like, what if Joseph really does hate us deep down and now he's really going to get us? You see what they're doing? They're assuming the worst in Joseph. They're assuming the worst. How often do we assume the worst in people? I think it starts from an early age. If you have kids, you probably know this to be true, but don't, isn't there just kind of this innate assumption of, of, of wrong in other people? Like, you know, my, my, my boys, when something is missing in our house, very rarely do my boys go, hey, you know, dad, I lost this thing or I can't find this thing. Usually it's someone stole it, Right right? My, my six-year-old, uh, he was going to go swimming the other day, so he's getting all of his swimsuit on, and he's trying to find his little swimming goggles, and he can't find his swimming goggles anywhere. Now, they're swimming goggles that are for a six-year-old. They don't fit anybody else's head in the family, right? And he comes running through there after looking for about, you know, 12 seconds. He comes running into the living room, and he goes, Dad, someone stole my goggles. And I was like, someone stole your goggles? Like, those goggles don't fit anybody else. There is not some like random goggle thief roaming the countryside looking for six-year-old goggles to steal. Your goggles are not gone. They're, they're around here somewhere. So sure enough, you know, you're a parent. You know how this works, right? You look for like a minute and you find them, right? He's like, oh, great. Puts them on and goes, okay? There's, this is the assumption. The assumption is 
the worst in someone else. Someone stole my goggles, right? This is what Joseph's brothers do. Joseph's been nothing but good and gracious and kind and forgiving and providing for them, and they are still assuming the worst in their brother. There are so many lessons in this one verse. I mean, I think we, as God's people, we talk about this all the time, how we're called to live sort of a countercultural life. We're called to live differently than the rest of the world. You know what the rest of the world does? The rest of the world thinks the worst in people that don't think like them, don't they? You ever watch the news? I mean, Democrats think the worst of Republicans. Republicans think the worst of Democrats, right? This is such a politically charged uh, environment that we are in, and everyone just assumes the worst in everybody else. Nobody gives anybody the benefit of the doubt. Man, it is, it is absolutely damaging, right? It's damaging, and this is what we see here. They're just assuming the worst. And so I guess first lesson from one verse is, man, what would it look like if we sort of lived life not just assuming the worst in everybody? Joseph's brothers, they are projecting onto Joseph a character that he has not demonstrated. In a lot of ways, it's more a revelation of their own character than it is of Joseph. I mean, this is what they know, right? They, this whole story started with them hating their brother. They hated Joseph. They understand hatred and getting even and vengeance, and this is what they're projecting onto Joseph. But that is not the way Joseph has ever responded to them. So we go a little bit further than in verse 16. It says, so they sent a message then to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now, to be clear, we don't know for sure if Jacob ever gave them this command, right? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But this is what, they're, this is what they tell Joseph, right? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Despite all that Joseph has done for his brothers and for their families, they still have a hard time accepting that Joseph is good and that he genuinely loves them. They continue to doubt his grace his mercy, and his forgiveness towards them. And as I read that this week, I thought, man, how often does that sound like the way we are with God, right? Despite all that God has done for us, despite all that God continues to do for us, God gives us breath in our lungs and a heartbeat in our chest. He's allowing us to see uh, the light of another day. He's been good over and over and over again. He sent Jesus to a cross who died for our salvation. God is unbelievably good. That is who he is. And yet, despite all of God's graciousness and all of God's goodness, how often are we like the brothers here where we just have a really hard time really believing that he is good towards us, that he truly loves us, and that we are indeed forgiven given for everything. And this is what Joseph's brothers, they just, they just seem to doubt the forgiveness and the goodness of, God, of, of their brother Joseph. One of the problems with this, I want to be really clear because, listen, we've, we've preached before here that having doubts, having questions is not, is not somehow like wicked or wrong. It's not, it has nothing to do with your salvation. There's, the Bible's full of faithful men and women who had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions for God. God's a big boy. God can handle our doubts. God can handle our questions. But here's the thing. Over time, 
Over time, if we as God's children continually doubt his love for us and his grace towards us and his forgiveness of all of our sin, what it does is ultimately it sort of robs us of of our identity as children of God and the grace and the peace and the joy in life that goes along with that identity. Are you following me? So what happens is, you know, we have a good, good father but we continually doubt whether we're really forgiven, whether he really loves us, whether he's really good towards us all the time. And pretty soon we just kind of stop believing. You know, we just kind of, we don't live out of that identity. The Bible's full of, of, of this, um, this picture that you and I, as children of God, that we live life out of our identity in Christ. That I am a forgiven and loved child of a holy God. That is who I am. I'm not who other people say that I am. I'm not who Satan tries to convince me that I am. I am who God says that I am. That's my identity. But what happens is when I continually doubt and question the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God, man, it is robbing me of my identity. It's hard to live out of an identity that I don't truly fully believe. And so we don't live with the peace and the joy that comes along with being forgiven children of God. Joseph's brothers really struggle with this. They struggle with understanding their full nature of their forgiveness. And I think if we're honest, we struggle with the full nature of our forgiveness as well. Let me just mention kind of something in the text that really stood out to me in hopes, in hopes that maybe we uh, will sort of grasp the fullness of our forgiveness, okay? So notice twice in verse 17, Joseph's brothers use the word transgression, When they're talking about the sin, the evil that they did, they use the word transgression, okay? Twice there in verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers. And then down a little bit further, it says, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They use that Hebrew word transgression, okay? I've talked about this before, but there are three Hebrew words for sin. There's the the common word, again, just, just sin. And then there's the word iniquity, And then there's the word transgression. Transgression is the strongest Hebrew word that there is for sin. Let me kind of explain what they each mean, right? So first of all, the simple word sin, uh, sin basically means to miss the mark, okay? That's what sin means, to miss the mark. Picture like an archer uh, aiming at a target, right? Uh, To miss the mark, to sin means you were trying, you were trying really hard to to hit the bullseye. You just messed up, like you just missed it. That's That's what the simple word sin means. Maybe you were trying, maybe you were giving it your best, but despite your best efforts, like sometimes we all mess up, we all fail, we all fall short, we all miss the mark, right? I think we understand that. Nobody's perfect. Sometimes we sin and we don't mean to, we don't intend to, we just sin. The second word, it's kind of the next, uh, the, the next word in the Old Testament is the word iniquity, okay? An inequalness, an unequalness, right? It's, it's a failure to measure up, okay? If, if Christ is our standard, we all uh, have iniquity because we don't measure up to that standard, right? We, we can't measure up to, to the standard. So the idea with iniquity is more the analogy like with a shepherd and his sheep, Jesus is the good shepherd. We are the sheep. So what happens sometimes is the sheep begin to graze, and they're not really uh, sticking closely to the shepherd. They just kind of begin to wander off because they're distracted. You know, they're distracted while they're, while they're grazing, and they just, they just sort of drift off from the shepherd, and then pretty soon they look up, and they can't find the shepherd. They don't know where he is. They're nowhere close. Does that sound like some of our lives, right? Maybe we just sort of drifted off. Man, maybe we... 
Maybe I've talked to many of you that have stories where like, yeah, I grew up in church, I went to Sunday school, I did the church thing, and then I got into a little bit older and I just, I just stopped going to church. I haven't been close to God in years. I haven't gone to church in decades, right? We have a lot of people that are sort of returning to their faith or returning to church. That's, that's great. Others of you, uh, you just feel like you've just sort of drifted away from the Lord. And so iniquity happens when we're not sticking close to Jesus, we're not really pursuing or following after our shepherd. We just sort of drift off, and there's an unequalness, an inequity in our heart because we just weren't paying attention, and we just drifted off from our good shepherd. But the word they use here, twice in verse 17, is the word transgression. Transgression is the strongest, again, it's the strongest word, and it is a, a deliberate, willful disobedience, okay? That's what transgression means. You knew it was wrong, you did it anyway. It might even be premeditated and planned out, right? A premeditated, willful act of disobedience. You knew something was wrong, you did it anyway, or you knew something was right and you chose not to do it. That is transgression. The brothers planned what they were going to do to Joseph. They thought about it. They got together. They conspired. They decided, let's get rid of him. It wasn't like an all of a sudden kind of random thought accidentally happened. They just sort of missed the mark. We missed the mark and sold our brother into slavery. That's not how that works, right? That's not how that works. And some of the sin that is in our lives, it's not by accident, right? It's not. Sometimes it's not sin. Sometimes it's not iniquity. Sometimes it is transgression, right? I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. Now, what I want you to understand and what I want you to see is that Christ forgives us for all of it. All of it. Let me show you a couple places. Uh, first of all, over in Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, and he uses all three of these words here. 103, beginning in verse 10. It says, He, that is God, does not deal with us according to our sin, to miss the mark, right? Nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. There's the second word. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove, there it is, our transgressions from us. Used all three of those words, sin, iniquity, and transgressions. He removes them. They're done. They're gone. Over in Isaiah chapter 53, this is written 700 years before the birth of Christ. It is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah the prophet writing about Jesus, the Messiah who will come one day. And over in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5, he writes, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I don't think we have it to put up there, but the very last verse in Isaiah 53 says, Yet he bore the sin of many. Again, in talking about the Messiah, Isaiah the prophet talks about how this Messiah is going to bear our griefs and our sorrows, that his wounds are going to bring healing for our sin when we miss the mark, for our iniquity when we just kind of aren't paying attention and wander away from the Savior, and for our transgressions when we willfully and deliberately sin. Listen, that's really good news, is it not? 
Because what that means is Christ doesn't just die on the cross and forgive us for the times we accidentally mess up. I think most of us believe that. Most of us know God is good and we'll kind of go, well, of course, when I accidentally mess up, God's probably going to understand that and forgive me. Well, of course, when I maybe just I'm not paying attention and I just sort of drift away, God will probably forgive me for that. But where I think we're like Joseph's brothers is we struggle when there's transgression, when there's outright, willful, deliberate sin. And we just kind of go, is God really, go- really going to forgive me for that? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Christ dies for our sin, our iniquity, all of our transgression. We don't have to question and wonder whether we are loved children of God. We don't have to question our identity rooted in Christ because it's Christ, Christ took care of all of it. He took care of all of it. And I hope that you see that. I hope that you get that. Joseph's brothers, they just didn't understand the depth of Joseph's love and goodness towards them. And I think if we're honest, sometimes we don't understand the depth of God's love and God's goodness towards us. Back to Genesis 50. In verse 18, it says that his brothers also came and they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Basically, um, Joseph sort of understood something that the apostle Paul would later write to the church, the churches in Rome. And, And namely, that is that it is not Joseph's place to, you know, seek vengeance and get revenge. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Joseph seemed to understand. He said, am I in the place of God? Like Joseph seemed to get it that vengeance and revenge and getting even and eye for an eye and all that stuff, man, that is, that is not for me. That's what the apostle Paul would write to the churches in Rome. Guys, leave that stuff to God. God is good. God is just. God will handle that. We don't have to do that. And so Joseph seems to grasp that really well. And then I want to end with this in verses 20 and 21. I think this is really the heart of Joseph's story, right? This is sort of the big idea of Joseph's story, and it is a beautiful snapshot or picture of the gospel, all right? Here's the way, here's the way it, uh, it, it, it's written in verse 20. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and the saving of many lives. Does that not sort of sound like the cross? Does that not sort of foreshadow and point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The cross appeared to be a really huge evil, did it not? You have an innocent man named Jesus who was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was then led through a series of false trials where he is wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted of a crime and ultimately sentenced to death. He is then beaten mercilessly Many criminals would die during the beating, never even make it to the cross. Jesus then has a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He is forced to carry the heavy crossbeam after the beating through the streets of the city where he is mocked and he is spit on, has insults hurled at him, things thrown at him. And ultimately then, uh, when they get to uh, Calvary, he has spikes driven into his hands and into his feet. 
He's nailed to that cross, and they bring the cross up and put it into, into position. And he literally hangs there for hours until finally his body can take it no more. And we're told that he dies. And just to make sure that he's really dead, they have a Roman soldier walk by and, and run a spear through his side. The Bible says a spear runs through his side, punctures the heart sack where blood and water spilled out, right? Sounds pretty evil, doesn't it? It sounds like a really huge evil. And yet, God used it to bring about the greatest good that the world has ever seen. Because three days later, Jesus gets up and he walks out of the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death once and for all. God used what appeared to be a really huge evil to bring about our salvation. The penalty for all of our sin and our iniquity and our transgression paid in full. The wage, the payment, the penalty for our sin paid in full. In what looked like evil, God used it for good. This is the story of Joseph. I love when I read Old Testament stories. And the hero of the story, it's not Jacob, the patriarch, the faithful patriarch. It's not the brothers. It's not even Joseph, right? The hero of the story is Jesus. The hero of the story is Jesus. All of this points to Jesus. All of this foreshadows the person and work of Jesus. This week I was reading through some different things, and it, uh, it, by my count, there are almost 20 different ways that Joseph's story parallels that of Christ. I counted 18 specific ways. I don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll briefly just give you about 10 of them or so. First of all, Joseph and Jesus were both loved dearly by their father. They both had others plot to kill them. Uh, they both had robes or garments stripped from them, taken from them. They were both taken to Egypt. If you remember Jesus as a toddler, Mary and Joseph take him down to Egypt uh, to get away uh, from Herod, right? And then Joseph, of course, is taken to Egypt. They were both sold for the price of a common slave or betrayed. They were both tempted. They were both falsely accused. They were both placed with two other prisoners. One was saved, one was not in both situations. They were both exalted after their suffering. They were both 30 years old at the beginning of their public service. They both forgave those who wronged them. They both saved their people. And both of them, what men used to hurt them, God ultimately used for a greater good. And there are multiple other ways, but I want you to see that Joseph's story points us to Jesus. Joseph's story reminds us of the gospel. Joseph's story reminds us of the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of our heavenly Father displayed in the person and work of Christ. And I think that we all need to be reminded of that, right? We all need to be reminded of that because here's the thing. When we live out of our identity in Christ, when we live as beloved, forgiven, and loved children of God, we live with much more joy and much more purpose. Let's pray together today. Father, we are so grateful for just the, the story that you give us of your servant Joseph. God, we're grateful for the person. We're grateful for the man that he was. We're grateful, Father, for the way that he was able to forgive, that he was able to not live life as a victim. 
He was able to be faithful to you in the, in the, in the face of great temptation. He was able to be faithful when he was wronged and mistreated. God, ultimately, we're grateful that Joseph's story really points us to you. Joseph's story, God, it reminds us of the gospel and it reminds us of the good news that you have gone to a cross and you've died on the cross for our sin and our iniquity and our transgression. So God, I pray today for anyone and everyone that is in here that is, that is hearing this today that, God, we would understand that we are loved and forgiven children of a holy God. No matter what we've done, no matter what our past looks like, there is no sin that is beyond your grace and your forgiveness. And so, God, I pray today we would be reminded through Joseph's story of your love for us, that we would trust your goodness, we would trust your forgiveness, and we would live out of that identity today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.